left off last time, a few reflections on silence I'd like to continue this evening, suggesting that silence is very shy. It doesn't respond to any kind of calculation, grasping. any demands that we might make upon it. You can't command the kind of silence that we're referring to here. Uh, no more than you could command anyone to fall in love with you. They might comply, but that would be different. It would be pseudo-silence. It would be a brittle, fabricated silence that would be partial, and disintegrate rather easily. Silence likes humility, gentleness, innocence. It likes to be valued for itself. And so the, the road to silence, assuming that you want to walk that road, that you even think there is anything worth coming to, is one that has, is filled with many obstacles. The main one, which was suggested last time, is ignorance. That is, we don't even know it's there. We don't know it's really so valuable. Although every sane person needs silence. In a common sense usage of that term, of course, every uh, living creature knows the value of silence. And I hope what was clear from last time is that there are rather different kinds of silence, all of which are valuable. There's a silence that comes from reading a good book, reading some uh, magnificent ideas from uh, seeing beauty in any form, nature. Just to swim in the ocean, taking a quiet walk in the woods. There are many ways to quieten ourselves. Being alone physically being alone, physical solitude. All of this is on the way. It can be on the way, and all of it's useful and valuable, even precious. Just ordinary silence seems to be scarce now in the modern world. From what I understand, even in the Himalayas, uh, monks and yogis who practice there say it's, it's a different situation military planes flying over all the time, and even on a more psychic level, there's just so much busyness. But most of us like some silence, we have it in our lives. 
But what is being mentioned here is an extraordinary kind of silence that grows out of the practice. In fact, you could say it's the heart of the practice. Because what is being said is that the essence, the deepest essence of our innermost being is silence. And our practice here, this place, is a place that we come to. I don't know what your motives are. We all have so many different words that we use for why we're here. But I'm sure if during the course of your stay or in other retreats that you've uh, had, when you've entered into some degree of silence, you've been grateful for it. And it has been healing and rejuvenating even for just a few moments. Our arrangement here, for example, simply to be quiet. We don't speak except in very special conditions, under very special conditions, individual interview, group interview, perhaps your job, but there'd be very little speaking for you here. Now, one of the things that comes out of that is that you save a tremendous amount of energy. Many of us don't realize how much energy it takes to talk. Quite a bit. Forgetting about any of the emotional concomitants that load talk down and make it even more tiring. Well, we've relieved you of that here. Now, I don't know if you appreciate it, <laughs> but it's a fact. You don't have to talk. Some of you aren't even coming to the group interviews, and there are some who don't even want to come to the individual interviews. More power to you. Keep quiet. But the purpose of the silence, which saves us this subtle kind of physical energy, it's psychic energy, is to the energy that would have been expended in speaking and countless other things that we do elsewhere, is to be invested into the practice. So we conserve energy from, uh, redirect it from where it normally goes. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not, we're not going to take a vow of silence. When we go back, we'll speak. Although that can change how we speak, what we say, how much, and so forth. So our practice is uh, already in that direction. We're trying to help lay the groundwork for this silence. Uh, assuming that there is some sense of value for it, uh, that we value this. You may not, and I don't mean to be insulting, maybe the vocabulary that you have for why you're here uh, doesn't include silence or perhaps it's incidental, or you may have different words which mean the same thing. I'm just using a word called silence. Maybe what that means will become clearer as we go on. Although start with the most obvious meaning, which all of us know. Some of you may have felt, Corrado suggested that uh, maybe most, maybe all of us feel, boy, remember I suggested that there, as we come close to the threshold of silence, a certain, there's a fear and a backing off from it. And I think his suggestion was a good one. He said that um, probably a, a lot of people just wish that they could be so lucky as to have the fear that comes from being so close to that kind of silence. <laughs> but let's not uh, put this on the moon because the silence I'm talking about is accessible. 
to human beings. And all of you know it. You know it in common sense terms, but you also know it in, in terms of the practice. The gap between thoughts. Sometimes there may be a few moments between thoughts, and of course those moments extend with practice. That's a pathway to a silence that's not fabricated, not fashioned, not constructed. And so we've all tasted that. We've all had our thought-free moments here, or when you've been totally concentrated on your yogi job. Maybe you don't realize it, but perhaps it was four or five seconds or a minute and a half or whatever, where there wasn't such a self-preoccupation, such a self-cherishing, but rather there was just doing the job, and the mind might have been quiet. So it's within reach. What I was trying to suggest is that where this silence that we're all in touch with already leads to uh, must be extraordinary. Otherwise, why would practitioners like ourselves over the centuries uh, do so much to try to taste it, to try to learn how to enter into it, to, how, uh, to allow ourselves to be nourished by it, and then to act from it? Just so there are not some misunderstandings, a few uh, questions in group uh, suggested that I better say a few things. Um, at the beginning, almost all of us, perhaps all of us, are so addicted to thought, it's one word to use for it, we give it tremendous authority over us, however that came to be. And so the antidote, sometimes in meditative circles, certainly in, in Buddhist circles, might be to poke fun at thought, to help us weaken and loosen the bonds or the bondage that we're in in regard to thought. It has a kind of vice-like hold over us. And so in Zen they'll often talk about cut thinking, don't think, and we have our own equivalents here in Tibetan Buddhism likewise. And so that might imply uh, a disdain for thought and also for action. Because if you recall, what was said last time is that uh, what we equate with living seems to be doing, using uh, sound in various forms, there was action, sound, and thinking. And so that's what we were educated to go after, to develop, to cultivate, to refine. And we're all doing some version of that. I don't think if there's someone here who was brought up uh, to also equate life with dropping into deep, all-pervading silence. That would be a unique... I want to go to that school, wherever you went. <laughs> that kindergarten or, or a preschool, wherever you learned it, or high school. But I don't think so. So that means what we equate with living, living a full life, doesn't really have very much to do with what is central here. That's why spiritual work, not only Buddhism, the core of spiritual work is always revolutionary. It's a quiet revolution, and it can be a bloodless one. It's not necessarily violent, but it's a revolution. Every generation, it's not just because it's come from Asia here that it's so strikingly different you know, to remake Western culture. If you grow up in an Asian society, real Dharma is revolutionary there too. So, um, 
then if you hear, the, hear silence extolled as being so wonderful, it might suggest that a kind of a split action, doing, talking, thinking, all that stuff is really plebeian, you know, just uh, mundane and worthless. To be really spiritual, I don't know what. You have to just be silent. Uh, I, I didn't mean that. But to begin with, because of the attachment to certainly language is so strong that often methods and techniques, including uh, humor or whatever else, is used to help us loosen that up a little bit. But the point is to come into balance. There is anyone who's sane has a healthy respect for the beauty of thought. Everything here is put together by thought. This building, the capacity for us to come here together to speak with one another, where would we be without it? So it's not to say that this is some idiotic endeavor that we have to cure ourselves from. But what Dharma teachings are saying is that we have uh, given entirely too much um, authority to thought. We, in effect, worship it. And it's led to a misconception and misunderstanding of the way things are. So that, in this sense, the machinery of thinking is, also, is the machinery of illusion, of delusion. Because it's creating all kinds of things which, if, turn, if they turn out to be correct from practice, are not true. Okay. Uh, in my own uh, practice, the very first Buddhist teacher I had was a Korean Zen master. And um, he started to work on... Uh, very interesting man. He came uh, to the United States with very little English. I don't know. He had about 10 or 15 little phrases. But he was a genius at uh, knowing how to use those phrases. And, uh, and who did he collect as students? All these PhDs, professors, MAs, engineers, physicists. You know, uh, we were just exhausted from our own mind. And we just loved talking baby talk. It was like Kore <laughs> Korean baby talk. It was just such a relief. So uh, he came here. He had no language. And he supported himself for uh, many months uh, repairing laundry machines in Providence, Rhode Island, literally. He didn't need to have much language. You know, uh, this broken, I fix. That's all he needed to know, you know. Okay. Uh, and little by little, uh, it became clear this was no ordinary uh, repairman. <laughs> Before you know it, uh, people like myself were journeying all the way from Cambridge to, to, to Providence, Rhode Island to hear these ten phrases. Uh, anyway, so part of that, we were already getting trained, but... Uh, so we were doing retreat after retreat after retreat, and uh, in that tradition, you come into an interview, it's much more formal and stylized. Uh, and uh, the answer he gave me was always the same, interview after interview after interview. It was most humiliating. It was just whatever I would say. He would look at me, too much thinking, and then <laughs> ring his bell, and that meant I had to leave. <laughs> And all of us, you know, we had never, we had been successful at all these Ivy League schools, but here's this uh, laundry repairman, and uh, 
whatever we say is not good enough. Okay. Finally, one day, uh, I had some silence in a sitting, and it was wonderful, and I came into the interview just beaming. And I said, Sansanim, I just had, it's just wonderful, there was no thinking, just very, very quiet. And then he looked at me with like a troubled look, what's wrong with thinking? <laughs> So, I, you know, I said, wait a minute. Okay. <laughs> so what he was trying to do is uh, weaken the attachments to thinking. But then once you went go, get, go overboard, uh, then he would pull you back. And um, in other words, he would pull you back to a balanced state where, of course, thinking is beautiful. But you have to be using the thinking rather than the thinking using you. And as some of you know, he also, uh, later on, to my dismay, but it was also tremendously helpful, uh, insisted that I not read for one whole year in Korea and Japan. And that was very, very difficult. Uh, but it was one of the wisest things. Uh, I'm glad I listened to him. I don't always listen to what authorities have to say, but I'm glad I listened this time. Uh, because it changed things dramatically. It helped very much. Just to give you a sense of how he used language, he once wanted to give a, he gave a talk. By the way, this, these 10 or 15 phrases uh, soon led to 100 people coming every Friday night and it was just really packed. At one point he was giving a talk on a famous Korean uh, bodhisattva, a, uh, a woman who was a courtesan, a prostitute, and uh, she uh, attained enlightenment. And she, I don't know if it's true or not, but men would come in for her body, but they'd walk out enlightened. <laughs> you know, anyway, something like that. So he was trying to convey that. <laughs> okay. And he started to, to say, so this, pro and he couldn't pronounce the word prostitute. I was his kind of, not that I know Korean, but I would get a sense of what he was trying to say and I'd try to give him the English words for it. So he knew if, and he tried to say prostitute and he couldn't. I, so I would say, prostitute, and he would go, pr pr he couldn't. So finally he coined his own phrase, which was much better. He said, sell the body lady. <laughs> okay. Okay. And so this sell the body lady, people come into this House of, house of, they come into this uh, sell the body lady house. <laughs> okay. So uh, I put up with five years with this man. Now eventually his vocabulary did increase, but not a huge amount. Uh, he had all these, what we now call um, sound bites. But they really went right to the target. But what he did, uh, I think, accomplish for all of us is help us understand how to move uh, in the direction of freeing ourselves from language to est establish a playful relationship with language, having great appreciation for its beauty, but also not being tyrannized by it. Okay, so um, what was mentioned are some other ways of uh, weakening the hold of thought on us. Because if you want to go to silence, you can't take thought in with you. You have to travel light. No. And some of what was mentioned, just to refresh your minds, were uh, reflections on the nature of thought, just to understand that uh, thoughts, um, first of all, they're just thoughts. 
that they are mechanical, that they're impersonal, that uh, they are something that's inherited, been uh, poured right into us as, as children. A whole universe is poured into us, uh, and so forth. And other things that can help, of course, is observation of thought. When you begin to see the nature of thought, that thoughts arise and pass away, thoughts arise and pass away, something starts to change in your relationship to them. They start to, to some degree, lose their potency. So, but thoughts are still very powerful. And as far as I can tell, based on my own experience and work with teachers and what I've read, the most effective way of releasing the hold of thought or weakening it little by little and then sometimes quite dramatically, these are all useful, kind of pecking away at it from the outside, you know, understanding the nature of thought. But the most powerful way uh, for thought to lose its potency is for us to have some taste of the joy and peace of silence. To learn how to enter into that silence, how to dwell there, the abode of silence it's sometimes called, to allow it to nourish us, to work on us. And then thought has a, when you've tasted that only a little bit, and that's all I have, I'm not presenting myself as someone who lives in the great silence, so if you, have, if you want to project your fantasies, find someone else onto me. And I think that, that makes sense. You understand that once you taste that silence, you hear thought in a very, very different way. It's very, very different. Uh, one teacher I had, a Cambodian teacher, we were, we were exploring right speech. And, you know, there, there, are, there are guidelines to right speech, to not lie, uh, to not speak in ways that are divisive, to not use harsh language, to not speak in ways that are kind of idle chit-chat. And we were talking about that, but then he said, this is all good, you know, try to not do that. He said, but what will help you most of all is if you start to taste silence. I said, why is that? And he said, when you really start to learn how to live a little bit in silence, the beauty of it, the exquisite nature of it, and he used the word, I don't know if it's the right translation, something like sacredness of it. He says, when you start to open your mouth, uh, it's uh, almost open your mouth and you're wrong. You know, no matter what you say, uh, you realize even the most refined speech is a rather crude instrument uh, for expressing what the deep experiences of being alive can be. And so there's a, you're very careful about how you use speech, or let's say more careful, uh, because of that. Now, I don't know that's one person's view. I think there is some truth to it. But here's the dilemma that we find ourselves in. For the moment, if you accept that the deepest and most effective way to free ourselves from the tyranny of thought, remember, not the use of it, but the tyranny of it, is to really taste silence, to really learn how to allow that to work on us. But then again, it's thought that keeps us from tasting silence. So we're kind of caught. Well, I want to get silent so that the silence will help me be free from thought, but in order to do that, I have to uh, work with thought, which is right in front of me, this barrier. So we work in both ways. 
We work on all of the various methods that we have to help silence the mind. And then when we have the good fortune of a few moments of silence, whether it comes from the breathing, from a conscious breathing, or whether it comes from understanding, and I'll go into the distinction in a moment, we learn how to uh, drink of those waters. And it's very helpful in terms of establishing a much more balanced relationship with all the productions of mind. But we also find ourselves back where we are, and we work from the outside in, uh, doing our practice. Let's take uh, shamatha practice, which is what we've been doing uh, for the last few days, and the instructions will change, in fact, so I don't forget. Uh, during the sitting right after breakfast, there'll be a new set of instructions. What we do there is we bring our attention to one object, the, bre the breathing, and by the process of coming back to the breath over and over and over again, all the energy that is squandered, scattered, dispersed, in all these random thoughts and inconsistent thoughts and even beautiful thoughts, little by little that energy is gathered together and is unified around the breathing so that the, the body, the breath, and the mind become unified. And there's a feeling of peace and silence. And I know we've all had a taste of at least some of that. Okay. That, of course, can be deepened. It's extremely helpful. It's healing. Uh, it weakens some of our attachments, although it doesn't uproot them. But that silence is also partial, and it also is very dependent on certain conditions and falls away. This is not to demean it, or we wouldn't be doing this. It's extremely important. And in part, it's important large part, because it enables the mind to be fit to see deeply into itself. And in seeing deeply into itself, which we sometimes call understanding, can come a different kind of silence. You could say that, uh, not you could say, I'm going to say it. Um, it's understanding that really quiets the mind. A full understanding, the mind's understanding of itself when it begins to see the nature of itself, its own nature, the silence comes quite naturally. Let me lay a little bit of the groundwork uh, for many, maybe all of you, this is, you already know this from other Vipassana retreats. That's the work of Vipassana. And just to give you just a bit of a hint into it, because we'll be beginning to do that more tomorrow, Let's say typically in that set of instructions, you're aware of whatever comes up in the mind. And as you know, a lot of what comes up in the mind uh, does not quiet the mind. It's worries and fears, loneliness, boredom, and so forth, and some beautiful things as well. And in a nutshell, what we've been learning to do is in calming the mind and concentrating the mind using the breathing, perhaps the mind is now a little bit more able to see all of those states, formations, mental and physical formations, and begin to see that each and every one of them arises and passes away. And it also lacks selfhood, doesn't have an enduring core. As we are able to see that, see the law of impermanence, there's, as you know, that's the door through which all Vipassana yogis walk through. 
It's a very profound door. As we begin to see that, uh, more and more uh, as the law of impermanence, not as an idea, but as an actuality, becomes a part of our understanding, the letting go, of course, is expedited. Because it makes no sense to grasp on and to hold on to things in a changing world. That is, the mind's tendency uh, to grasp, to fixate, to push away, to try to get things to move faster than they are moving or to keep things from going as fast as they seem to want to go, uh, is at war with the way things are. And it produces a tremendous amount of suffering because the law of impermanence doesn't care whether we know it or not. It just rolls on. And so wisdom is beginning to learn how to embrace this law to enter in com into communion with the law of impermanence, to stop fighting it, because uh, who's going to win in, a, in a, a, a battle between any one of us and the universe? <laughs> it takes us a while to figure that one out, though. Okay. So little by little, we learn, uh, we, you know, there are many different oscillations that we go through here regarding impermanence. But more and more, uh, seeing the impermanence and the emptiness of self, of whatever is arising and passing away, helps us let go. And as we let go, uh, you let go into some stillness. Understanding brings stillness. That formation that before might have uh, captured your attention, that you identified with ferociously, and then made into some mind state that was problematic for you, that starts uh, to not be so strong anymore and we learn how to let go into the stillness. Now, the quiet mind can see clearly. There are many virtues to the quiet mind. I don't know if we'll have time to go in, uh, but mainly you have to experience it. The words are. But when the mind becomes still, another word for it is becomes clear. So that as you see into the nature of these formations, mental and physical, and are able to let go, and the letting go takes you to some stillness, which is to say some clarity, then that clear mind, which again can look at formations coming and going, can see the law of impermanence at a dramatically deeper level, can feel the full impact. You see, uh, everyone here knows that things change. I mean, how could it? We all know it, but it doesn't have much transformative power. Well, what helps it, as the mind becomes still, quiet, concentrated, clear, words like that, the impact of the truth of something uh, hits you at a, a dramatically deeper level. It's incomparable. All the, you know, at the beginning, for years, we're very puzzled about what's this and not this stuff about self, and then who gets enlightened, if there's no one here, then uh, what am I doing, who paid the admission here, what's going on? You know, uh, and then we desperately try to spin out words so you don't get too discouraged and Karada and I have joked many times why did the Buddha have to develop this Anatta stuff it just makes our job too hard because <laughs> all, all you get is furrowed brows and every now and then there are logicians and philosophers and then they just drive you crazy okay. but when the mind gets quiet uh, and it looks into what we think of as being me, 
in a, in a, with some continuity, it can begin to see the truth of that, uh, which each one of us must see for ourselves. It's not an ideology. It's not a belief. But the capacity to, to, to receive the full benefits of the practice deepen as our mind becomes clearer, as our mind becomes more stable, more pliable, more flexible, more workable, because then the seeing uh, is what liberates us. It's not understanding it on an intellectual level, which is helpful, but that's like a good menu. It's not a meal. You can't build a life on menus. It's not very nourishing, even the best graphics and all the rest of it. You want food, real food. And so all of the, in a sense, platitudes that you read in all these Buddhist books over and over and over again, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, that all comes to life when the mind becomes clear. It's not just a bunch of dead lists. It really isn't. And you have to see it in your own life. And so this cycle of... uh, seeing insight into the way things are, helping us let go, the letting go, enabling the mind to be clearer, the clarity of mind, enabling us to see more deeply with the insights having more depth and as a result more power to uproot and to see through illusion leaves us more still. And then with that increasing stillness, we go even deeper and it keeps going like that. We've um, in a sense the the approach to, to stillness is first knowing it's there and then finding ways uh, finding ways to enter into it and I would say there are so many all the things we're doing are helping us the precepts, the refuges, the silence, good food, harmonious staff, everything. Everything affects us and we affect everything. But what I am suggesting is what is most effective is understanding. It's finally the clear and deep seeing that can take us to a depth of stillness uh, that's hard to come by otherwise. And it's what makes all the difference. Um, I have a bit more to say, but I think we'll uh, leave that, um, because once you enter into stillness, then there's the matter of uh, the, well, what happens in stillness? What do you do? How do you practice with stillness? And then of tremendous importance, especially for us as lay people, is uh, stillness in action. It's, this is not meant to set up a dichotomy between contemplation and action, where Uh, which often happens. You have the activists who are running around saving everything and making a cartoon out of it, Uh, but not much inner peace or clarity. And then you've got the so-called contemplatives who are hiding from the world and afraid of the world. And by the way, that isn't what the Buddha had in mind anyway. But it's really a very uh, harmonious dance back and forth between entering into silence and then learning how to bring that silence into ordinary and daily life. Stillness is a very practical thing. This is not just for romantic poets. It's for us. It's for ordinary people. 
uh, it actually affects the quality of our life dramatically, no matter what you're doing. You all know it. Uh, how many times have I heard, even from beginners, saying, um, you know, I came to the retreat and I had a business problem and I just didn't know how to solve it. And uh, then sometimes, maybe with some suggestions in interviews or on their own, they just drop, stop trying to solve it and maybe the mind gets quiet and at the end of the retreat, suddenly the answer comes up. Where did it come from? It kind of gurgles up from the silent mind. Uh, put another way, silence is an extraordinary, uh, I don't know what to call it, but it's at least intelligence, an extraordinary intelligence. It's just not intellectual intelligence, which is useful, precious, necessary, but it isn't all there is. We've lost sight of another kind of intelligence, what you could call organic intelligence. At any rate, uh, so we have to, the journey is entering into silence, learning how to participate, how to benefit from it, and how to enter into life with a clear mind in all of the things that are required in life. And what the assumption is, and until you make it your own from experience, is that uh, this is beneficial for action. And so life becomes a, uh, a fluid uh, relationship between contemplation and action. Okay, uh, a precaution. I have just given some of you a new way to suffer. <laughs> You've already come here. You have your own tried and true ways to suffer. <laughs> you know, that you're adepts at. You've refined them and polished them. And you can do it at any time. At the, at you wake you up in the middle of the night, you, can, you know just how to do it. <laughs> and now I've given you a new one. And the new one is, I've got to get that silence. <laughs> Boy, I thought I, I had everything, but he was pretty convincing. Get, that, get me some of that silence. And uh, you've just gone directly to jail. Do not pass go. Okay. As I told you, it's shy. So you don't get silence by trying to get silence, but by making friends with noise. Yeah. Can we have a few moments of silence? <laughs> Excuse me. This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 8, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.